Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk, and I am so excited for you to join me for today's episode. Today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Kate Kaplan, who is a licensed psychologist. So Kate, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I'm really excited too. So before we dive into all the topics we're going to talk about, can you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and what you do? Of course. Um, So I am a licensed clinical psychologist. I have a small private practice in Los Angeles. I have a PsyD, so I have a doctorate in clinical psychology. I specialize in working with mostly young women and young adults. Um, So I spent a lot of my training and postdoctoral years in college counseling. Absolutely love working with young adults. Um, As I became a mom, as I matured, as I've sort of um, reached new phases of life, I sort of had an interest in working with women across the lifespan. Um, So over the years, I've gained more training in perinatal mental health. um, So period from when women are pregnant, after pregnancy. um, And I incorporate that work and mindfulness work. So I'm very much into mindfulness and self-compassion. And so over the years, I've obviously gained more advanced training in that. Um, Let's see, I treat mostly, I I call myself a generalist. I don't know if people Mm -hmm. still do that, but I treat, I see mostly anxiety, depression, panic disorders, social anxiety. Um, But I have a strong background also in, um, families and couples. So in my graduate program, that was my emphasis. So I sort of see, I see the individual from a family lens, um, Mm -hmm. from a family systems lens. I don't think anyone exists within a vacuum. So I I do tend to do a lot of work around family relationships and um, helping young adults in particular navigate those, those relationships. I love that. And I love hearing people's stories of where they kind of started. So you just talking about, you know, a lot of your focus was couples and families, and then you became Mm -hmm. a mother. And I've had various guests on talking about like motherhood, mental health. And I feel like every single person I've talked to is like, I didn't really get into that until I became a mother myself. And it sounds like that was kind of your journey. Totally. And I think it's cool that we have careers that evolve. Um, So I think especially if you're like, um, I don't know what your experience was like, but I remember in, in graduate school is a lot of like, you have to choose a niche. Mm-hmm. And that really stressed me out. I remember that stressing me out. Um, and I never quite chose a niche. I sort of fell into the young adults because mm-hmm. um, my 20s were 
kind of tumultuous in the sense of like identity development, figuring out who I was. And so that sort of drew me to that. But yeah, I love that we have a career where we can evolve as we mature and evolve as people, um, that we have new interests and new passions. And I think that's super cool. Oh, I love it as well. I tell people all the time that originally when I entered graduate school to get my PhD, I didn't think I was going to do clinical work. I thought I was going to do just academia and research and now I do need those things. So um, funny. Yeah. So it's, I, I love um, how many options we have. Totally. With, within so our field. Yeah. And I, I, um, the reason I was, I was thinking as we were talking, cause I know you have a PhD. Mm-hmm. I did this idea. I wanted psych assessment training. Mm-hmm. And so I actually have this whole other part of my career where I did psych assessment for many years and um, worked with people applying for disability through the state Um, And that was like pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic, I stopped doing that. And then like before all of this, just to give you context, um, I also was a social worker for Child Protective Services. So I have this whole, I remember going to grad school, I was 26 at that time. And like, Mm -hmm. I felt so old compared to everyone, but that's because I had like wanted to test out all these different careers. So it's also part of my journey and probably why I love working with young adults because it's like, it's okay to kind of meander and try to figure it out. And then that also applies to being a mom as well, you know? Absolutely. And that just kind of gave me more context for like the family lens as well. I don't know if that was intentional, like working as a social worker with child protective services and then focusing on like families in graduate school. But obviously you see a lot of different types of families when you're working in that type of job. Yeah. Um, And family systems theory is just, um, I remember taking that class and I was like, oh my God, my mind is blown. Like we did genograms and all these mm -hmm. things. This makes so much sense. And then I looked back at my social work time when I didn't have any of that training. It's like, oh, poor baby me. How did I survive that? Because it is, it's a very wild, wild place to work in. And it's, you see a lot of things that really open your eyes. I remember the first time having to do a genogram on my family and then learning how to apply it to yeah. clients. And I was like, oh my gosh, like yeah. this makes so And just like seeing, I don't know, for me, I'm very visual. So yeah. like yeah. seeing things laid out and the connections and all of that, it's just. Yeah. It's cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I take is. all of that when I work with individuals, so whether I'm working with a young adult or a mom or whoever I'm working with, I take all of that. And that's like where my head's at. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how I view them. Yeah. And and you said a lot of times now you're working with like anxiety, depression, panic. Is that an area that you were always interested in? Is that just what young adults and women mm-hmm. are presenting with? Kind sure. of how did you fall with the, within those kind of mental health diagnoses? Yeah. So again, I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel like, um, you know, we're called, what are are therapists called? Um, Is it wounded healers? Is that the term? Yeah, I've heard that before. But my point is, is that um, I started having panic attacks prior to going to grad school. I got into therapy and it like changed the way I like wanted my life to go. And so it was so impactful. So as someone that has dealt with anxiety most of their life, Mm -hmm. um, maybe not diagnosed, but certainly there. Um, I took a keen interest in it. So it was only natural that I would find myself um, feeling very comfortable working mm-hmm. with that. 
But certainly, yes, with young adults. So I'm talking like anywhere from 18 to 25, like that's Mm going to be the time where you're really going to see all of these mental health conditions popping up without a name. Um, Now, I think we have so much information more now at our fingertips, obviously, with social media and TikTok and all of that. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that people are more equipped to to deal with it. So um, young adults tend to um, have, you know, present with anxiety and depression and panic and and um most are kind of freaked out like what do i do with this Mm -hmm. um how do i help myself how do i get rid of it right away and so there's a lot of conversations around um well you know anxiety and depression are part of life these are like some of these are normal phenomenons normal emotions and feelings that we experience um however you know it gets to a point where it's not helping you and your functioning and we have to talk about you know how are we going to help you so that's that camp um and for women and in general and in moms, I, I think um, becoming a mom like breaks your whole world open. Yeah. Um, and I think it's um, pretty natural to have anxiety about something that we don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about anxiety as like uh, the way I explain it always is like, it's, you know, it has its evolutionary purposes. It's, mm-hmm. it's there to keep us safe Um we have that part of our brain that's you know, um, trying to protect us. That's basically what moms are trying to do, right? We're trying to keep mm-hmm. our children safe and trying to protect our kids. And so that part of our brain is just firing constantly. Um, and I think it's a, it's a fine line at times with like what is quote unquote normal mm-hmm. and what might be something that like needs additional help. Um, Absolutely. Hello, would you like to learn to meditate? Or perhaps you've meditated for quite some time. I started around 50 years ago. As you know, meditation is good for lots, including stress reduction, letting go of anxiety, self-exploration, and ultimately awakening. If meditation or awakening interests you, Check out my podcasts on Awakening Together with William Cooper. All of them are free. Both the description and the link are in the show notes of this podcast. So, like I said when I was introducing you, we are going to cover a lot of different topics today. Um, A lot of what you've already touched on with who you see, um, kind of interventions mm-hmm. you use, things like that. So one of the things we're going to be talking about is utilizing mindfulness and self-compassion in motherhood. So these are two things that you say that you use a lot in therapy. Yeah. So first, can you describe what mindfulness and self-compassion are and particularly why they are important for <clears throat> mothers to for use? Sure. Yeah. So I think when we think of mindfulness, I feel like sometimes we think of like someone sitting on a rock, like meditating for an hour, like achieving some state of nirvana. And that is, that certainly can be one form of it. Um, But that's not really what it is. So mindfulness Mm -hmm. is really bringing an awareness to the present moment. Mm -hmm. So you can bring an awareness to the present moment and your thoughts, being aware of your thoughts and feelings. Um, and also there's a piece of obviously meditation and breathing is helpful as well. Um, 
So moms don't have time to sit and meditate for an hour. I, I'm sure you can relate. Yes. Uh, yeah. And on my Instagram page, I've filmed a lot of like one minute or a minute and a half meditations because mm-hmm. really the idea is if we can be mindful of the breath, we can start to slow our nervous system down. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're anxious and as, as an anxious mom, your um, sympathetic nervous system is activated. So that part of your body that's ready to sort of fight or, or flight. Um, mm-hmm. And so the breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, deep breathing really helps trigger that the parasympathetic nervous system and the part of your brain that will help you calm down. Now, I think the misunderstanding is you have to do that all the time for it to have any beneficial effect. And if you look at sort of um, look at, look at it as sort of a muscle mindfulness, like if you were to just work on two to three breaths a day and calming your nervous system down so that when you are in a stressful situation, your body's like more apt to, to be calmer and not as anxious. Um, So that sort of combines, I guess, all of your questions as to why I think it's helpful for moms. But the other camp is that we can be mindful in our thoughts. So Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole branch of therapy called ACT. Are you familiar with ACT? Yes. Yeah. So um, acceptance and commitment therapy, really the idea is being mindful of our thoughts and not becoming too attached to them. And that Mm -hmm. is mindfulness. Um, It's very Buddhist in its thinking. Mm -hmm. And I, I was a religion major undergrad, believe it or not, uh, with sociology, but I really was into like East Asian religions. And so I I think that's why I'm I'm always drawn to, to mindfulness is from that background. But, um, yeah, it's the idea of noticing your thoughts. So as moms, this is something you can do if you don't really have a lot of time is, and again, I come back to the time thing, because I just, you need to think about what works with having a a baby or a toddler. Mm -hmm. Um, being aware of your thoughts. Oh, there's, there's that anxious thought and then being able to notice it without becoming too attached. Cause at the end of the day, a, th- a thought is a thought. It's not yep. reality. Right. So can I notice these thoughts? Can I practice soothing myself with these thoughts or feelings, whatever's coming up? Um, and that is, that's mindfulness. Um, we might not think of mindfulness in that way mm-hmm. traditionally. Um mm-hmm but it's really beneficial. I think the more that we can work on noticing our feelings and thoughts without becoming too dialed into them, the more we're able to help our kids do the same thing. And I do, I I've tried breathing with my six year old and she wants to punch me in the face. So that does not hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what does work is helping her name the feelings. Like she's really Mm -hmm. into that. So like, but I can't do it in like a condescending way. Like, oh, you're so angry. I'm like, you're really fucking angry right now. I get it. Mm, yeah. I get it. And this moment is not going to last forever. And so there's a lot of that kind of conversation. So I, that's why I love helping moms because I feel like whatever work you're doing on yourself is exactly what you're helping your child deal with mm-hmm. too. Um, learning how to co-regulate and regulate our emotions together. Absolutely. You said so many great things in there. And I love that you brought up the point that by mothers in particular practicing mindfulness, then it helps their kids too, whether it's because you are more present, calmer, more regulated yourself, whether it's because you're modeling these behaviors. I definitely try to do deep breathing with my two-year-old, which is 
Yeah. She she does do it, but it's yep. probably not super effective the way she <laughs> deep breathes because it's very yeah. like <laughs> like I love it. But at least she's, you know, um trying. It's- and it's usually like after she needs to do it. Like in the moment she's like, no. And then after I'll just see her like huffing and puffing. But you know, <laughs> introducing yeah. the those concepts earlier. Um and another thing I love that you said is you know, figuring out how it works for you. Um, you mentioned doing those like one minute meditations that you have yeah. on your Instagram because yeah, motherhood is busy. Whether it's you're weird. a working mom, yeah. stay at home mom, like having a child takes up a lot of time. So it you does. don't, yeah, yeah. you and don't have thing, time. Yeah, you don't. And I think the thing is, is people really think like an all or nothing thinking. Like mm-hmm. if I can't, sit and meditate for 10 minutes every single day, because yes, I believe in consistency and habits and all of that. And I think it's important, but I also believe in flexibility. So mm-hmm. um, your daughter's perfect example, like how wonderful that you're giving her that skill. It does not have to be done perfectly. Like that is the message though, of like, yeah. hey, you're trying this thing. You don't like it. You're not doing it perfectly. And it's the same thing with meditation and mindfulness. Like I do not preach that I'm some like um, enlightened individual. <laughs> um, I do my best and I try. Yeah. I try to be mindful. I try to take those deep breaths, you know, when I can. So I'm not as activated. And I think it's, it goes into self-compassion too, because mm-hmm. it's again, the modeling for them of how to be compassionate with ourselves when we're less than perfect. Perfect. Absolutely. So you, already mentioned like the one minute mindfulness that you have shared on your Instagram, like deep breaths. Do you have any other strategies or tips for implementing mindfulness and self-compassion into parenting, into uh, a parent or mother's daily life? Um, Any other strategies you would teach your clients? For sure. So you can bring mindfulness just to your daily activities. So Mm And anyone's welcome to look these up if you want to look up ACT, A-C-T. Some of the things that they suggest that I've used with clients before is even this idea of grounding yourself. So like Mm -hmm. standing up, feeling your feet on the ground, but like actually moving and walking with your feet. And with each time you put your foot to the ground, just sort of being mindful and reminding yourself to come back to the present. Mm -hmm. You could be washing because your brain's going to go everywhere. That's so having the expectation that I should again be like a clear mind is so unrealistic. I think, um, I don't remember, do we think like 70, 80,000 thoughts a day? It's something insane. Yeah, it's something insane that we would never be able to reduce, be aware (laughs) of all the thoughts. Yeah. So I think it's not, it's about the practice of coming back to the moment in your breath when you get distracted by all the thoughts. So you could simply put your feet to the ground, ground yourself. You could go outside into, you know, let's say you're playing with your kids. You feel it, you take your shoes off, you feel your feet in the grass, or maybe you're at the park and you put your feet in the sand and you just feel the sun as it hits you and the granular feeling of the sand on your toes, like just really taking in um, all the sensory experiences. So that's a big part of mindfulness, touch, Mm -hmm. smell, sight whatever else there is sound. Uh, (laughs) One of those, Uh, you could be washing dishes and you could sort of, you know, focus on the feeling of like the water on your hands, Mm -hmm. like just those tiny moments of mindfulness. 
And then the other thing we were talking about is self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to get into that? Yeah, I would love you I to. I, I love self-compassion. Love cool. it. Yeah, but I always awesome. love to hear from other people as well on like what they think and do and all those things because maybe yeah. I'll learn something. Yeah, I love that. Maybe. <laughs> um, so I had done the like intensive workshop with Kristen Neff, who's like the uh, mm-hmm. the mother of self-compassion. I don't know. Um, Absolutely. And her work just like so resonated with me. It was, it was, I was newly ish licensed and I just felt like, whoa, this is so revolutionary and awesome. But um, I think often people think self-compassion is um, just like being nice to yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people really misunderstand what it is, which is why I like talking about it. Yeah. Um, It's actually, it's actually kind of dark in a way. It's like, it's, dialing into the fact that we all experience pain and suffering and not ignoring that. Um, So pain and suffering is part of life. And that goes back to the piece of talking to clients about anxiety and depression and the belief that we all feel anxious and sad. That's part of the human experience. So dialed into the fact that we all experience pain and suffering. um, And then there's this other component called shared humanity. So Mm -hmm. We all experience pain and suffering. We're not alone. We're all in this together. Um, I feel like in those really like heavy moments, it's nice to know, to connect Mm -hmm. to the humanity of other people. Um, And then sort of that last component is how do you talk to yourself? So Mm -hmm. how do you uh, treat yourself? And self-compassion is about acknowledging our mistakes, acknowledging our weaknesses, acknowledging the pain. Um, letting it be sort of being mindful of it, but also helping ourselves with an internal dialogue. That's, that's um, kinder and more compassionate. Um, So I think a lot of us, you know, we internalize voices from our caregivers and our parents, Mm -hmm. and that becomes the internal dialogue. And for so many patients that I see that internal dialogue is so negative and so self-critical and self-compassion is really encouraging you to like rethink how you talk to yourself. Like, how can I speak to myself as I, as I would a friend? Um, Mm -hmm. Because we're so mean to ourselves. We wouldn't be that mean. Absolutely. Um, And so that's why I love, I love self-compassion that it sort of incorporates all of these different components. Oh, absolutely. And you did a beautiful explanation of self-compassion and, Thank you. Yeah, I, I like how you framed it as it is dark. And a lot of people, even if if they've seen uh, Dr. Neff's work, they see the like self com- uh, self kindness, common humanity, um, and mindfulness components. But there's the opposites as well, like the self criticism, the isolation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I use self compassion a lot with. Um, the chronic illness kiddos I see because having a chronic illness as a child is very isolating in many ways. Um, But recognizing like it is unfair. It is painful. Um, You are going through suffering and you are not the only one um, experiencing this. Or even if you don't know another child teen with your same medical condition, Mm -hmm. there are other children and teens out there going through similar things. And that's something I highlight with all my clients when we do self-compassion work is 
you might not be experiencing the exact same pain or suffering as somebody else and someone is going through something similar or can relate um, to that. That's beautiful though, because it gives them perspective because I think there's nothing worse than people trying to like deny what you're experiencing, like Mm -hmm. um, sort of that toxic positivity of like, you're fine. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. Like, no, you need someone to be like, no, it does not feel fine right now. It feels really shitty. And I have every reason to feel bad. I think um, once we can meet ourselves in that experience, sort of like your sick kids, like Mm -hmm. I'm sure they feel so seen and attuned to in that moment of, um, having someone see their pain and suffering and not just like push it away. Oh, absolutely. And as you were talking, another thing that I was thinking, although we were talking about mindfulness and self-compassion in the context of motherhood, obviously this applies to all humans. Yeah. Um, We can all benefit from being more mindful, being more self-compassionate because we yeah. are so critical of ourselves. I always say we are more mm. critical of ourselves than we would be anybody else. 100%. Yeah. And we live in a time where we're watching everyone live their lives. And so it's like, how could we not be even more self-critical? It's even it's an even more important time for us to try to hold on to like some semblance of feeling good in our own skin. Um, Absolutely. And that's, it's, it's really hard. And so I, I think meeting yourself where you're at with mindfulness and self-compassion is very important for for everyone not just uh, the populations we're talking about absolutely so another area that you are passionate about talking about is high sensitive people so can you talk about what it means to be highly sensitive <clears throat> and then some challenges that highly sensitive people face yeah for sure um so high sensitivity is a um, temperament. I think that's mm-hmm. an important distinction to make. It's not a disorder. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there is some controversy around it. And there is sort of, so it's based off of the work of Elaine Aaron. So Dr. Aaron's work, and she has tons of research, tons of research over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, but more recently, there's been sort of a, a re-examining of high sensitivity as part of, as a neurodivergence. Um, And sometimes it's conflated with autism or ADHD and they're totally separate. So they can, there can be a comorbidity. So they can be, you can have a sensory processing disorder, ADHD, autism, and also be highly sensitive, but highly sensitive is not um, a disorder. So it's a temperament or a trait. Just thought I'd get that out of the way. Uh, so it's a temperament or trait that about 15 to 20% of the population has. And the research that was done on it, um, that has been done on it, found it in like animal species. So it's, oh, it's wow. um, the belief is that it's, you know, it's certain, um, certain people, certain species are highly sensitive, sort of, we need this part of the population and I'll get sort of into what it means, but we need this part of the population, um, we we need them. We need them to be aware. We need them to be noticing things and creating things. Um, and so that's why it was interesting that it was also found in the animal kingdom as well. Um, so what's helpful when thinking of high sensitivity is there's an acronym called DOES. Um, and so it goes through all the different parts of the temperament or trait. 
So the first one is uh, depth of processing. So it's important to really think about high sensitivity as more, it's not about being introverted or shy. Mm -hmm. Even though you can be introverted and shy, it's more about um, how are you processing and taking information in? So highly sensitive people are processing things at a very deep level. Um, Again, evolutionarily, perhaps that was beneficial to have people like that as part of the human species Mm -hmm. so that we can notice things and um, keep our humankind uh, surviving. (laughs) Um, So I like the the sort of metaphor of like, if you think of a conveyor belt, there's like oranges coming down the conveyor belt. The highly sensitive person is like sorting the oranges, doing just fine compartmentalizing. That's sort of how their brain works. But then all of a sudden there's some sort of glitch and like 20 oranges come down and they're like trying to process things very deeply and categorize and organize and their brains get really overwhelmed. Okay. So that is sort of the the struggle with the depth of processing is feeling really overwhelmed. Um, Sometimes it can lead to decision fatigue. If you think about Mm -hmm. a brain that's so busy, it's hard to sort of sort through, um, you know, sort through all the things that are coming down the pike. So then the next part of the acronym is over uh, arousability. So this is a big part is a, a nervous system that's really finely tuned that's how I like to present it, like a strength. So mm-hmm. that means um, someone that's noticing things, picking up on things. However, it means someone that's very excited. Mm-hmm. Um, so the overarousability, sort of the struggle there can be, um, certainly can lead to anxiety and depression. Um, it's sort of like the way it's presented, and I don't know that I love this, but is the idea of having just a thinner skin. So like everything is coming in, Okay. And that can lead to over arousal of the nervous system, of the brain. Um, and as you and I were just talking about, that can lead to anxiety and anxious mm-hmm. thoughts. The E is excitability. So again, sort of into that over arousal of, you know, um, easily excited, easily aroused, which also lends itself to someone that like appreciates art at such a deep level or appreciates Mm -hmm. music at such a deep level or like is moved to tears. Um, But again, it can lend to, to having a difficult time of like slowing the mind and body down. And then the last one is the sensory sensitivity. So um, being very sensitive, and this might be the one that we think of more typically being Mm -hmm. really sensitive to stimuli being really, so that might mean someone that's, um, you know, uh, getting overwhelmed with really bright lights or, or lots of sounds or um, for kids, because there can be highly sensitive people, HSP, and then highly sensitive children, HSC. Okay. For the kiddos, it can present like, um, like the seams on their socks bother them. Mm-hmm. Or um, I always give this example of my daughter, like she is absolutely freezing when she gets out of the bath, like her sensitivity to um, cold is like next level. And that could be normal. However, she has some of the other parts yeah. of the high sensitivity. Um, so that's the other thing too, is you sort of have to hit all of those domains um, to be considered highly sensitive. If you do go to Dr. Aaron's um, website, you can take a quiz and it can help you understand if you're highly sensitive. And I find that uh, when I do send clients there, that's often really helpful. That's awesome. I learned so much just listening to you, oh, thank you. Uh, speak. But one thing I love, because, you know, I, I've i heard the term highly sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I've heard it with autism. I've heard it with ADHD. I've heard it on social media. I don't feel like it's become as much of a buzzword as other terms, but I love that you broke down the the does in it and also talked about like the emotional and kind of in many ways, like cognitive excitability regulation piece, as well as like tactile sensory, if that makes sense. Because I think a lot of times, at least what I've seen and probably have my own biases, like when I think of high sensitivity in like a neurodevelopmental disorder, such as autism, I usually think of more the like input sensory, like the bright lights, seams on socks, and then think of, um, you know, the kind of the emotionality more maybe in like anxiety or, you know, people who are empaths or more empathetic. So I liked that it encompasses all of that. Yeah, it does. You were talking. Yeah. You you sort of, um, and again, I think um, there is a lot of information out there, which is totally awesome. And that's why I wanted to start by differentiating. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it could be a form of neurodivergence. I don't Mm -hmm. think we know enough at this point. Um, but really we're looking at, even though we're not approaching it as if it's a disorder, we are looking at it at these different domains. Um, I happen to have a emotionally intense, sorry, that's the E, emotionally intense. Um, (laughs) but I happen to have an extroverted, um, highly sensitive kid. So it looks Mm -hmm. totally different. Um, she, uh, is not a kid. So the highly sensitive people or children, they tend to think about their decisions. They tend to think very um, critically about everything that they do. They tend to be more reticent. Um, But then there's also highly sensitive children that have, they they think of, it's almost like a a pedal in their brain. So some kids Mm -hmm. push that pedal real hard um, to break it. And other kids just have a go system that, that goes. Um, I have a daughter that just goes. So um, she's atypical, but she also has the over arousability, the emotional intensity, the sensitivity and, and the depth. And so it's it's also important to think about like um, when we're talking about any of these things, how they can present and look so differently in, in every single person. I am an introvert. So mm-hmm. I'm completely different than her. Yeah. Um, but I we have very similar, um, I might be projecting here, but we have that <laughs> similar um, sensitive sensitive brain. And I think prior generations just approached it and looked at it differently. And I Mm -hmm. think I grew up being told I was too sensitive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I internalized that that was a bad thing, that I shouldn't be too Mm -hmm. sensitive or I shouldn't think before I talk or I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't be so reticent to join things. And uh, that's again, where that self-compassion comes in of like rewriting that story for myself and and why I'm so drawn to high sensitivity. Cause if I can help, um, I can help anyone start to view it differently, view their sensitivity as more of a, a strength. Um, but it is, you know, learning how to, how to work with it. So mm-hmm. certainly that over arousability is a big deal. Um, so knowing when you've had too much or knowing when you're overstimulated. Um, mm-hmm. And then like you brought up, knowing when to get further assessment for yourself or mm-hmm. your child, when it c- could possibly, ooh, sorry, when it could possibly be something more. Um, because mm-hmm. I do think sometimes we hold on to these titles and we're like, we make our whole lives about it. And do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, oh, oh yeah. I am anxious or I'm highly sensitive. And then we can't see ourselves or our children as a, 
a bigger multifaceted Picture. person. So always, yeah. always getting an assessment and, and taking the next step when you think it's something more. Mm-hmm. I that love that. You know, it, it did. And I was just going to say, I love that you brought up your experience as a child and being told like you're too sensitive and then you're internalizing that as a bad thing because I do think, and I don't know if it's changed in different generations, but in our generation, if you were called sensitive, it was like implied it was bad. Like, oh, yeah. you, or you're a crybaby or, you know, like don't take it that seriously, things like that. And as you were talking, I can think of one client in particular that who is highly sensitive and we've talked about it in therapy. And like at the beginning, I always prefaced like being sensitive is not a bad thing. I know that's what's been communicated to you, yeah. but like the d- feeling things deeply, I'm just thinking as you were yeah. explaining, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is going to help me so much uh, yeah, in my yeah, clinical yeah. practice because yeah, being sensitive is not inherently a bad thing. <clears throat> I think <throat> the messages and even I'm, and obviously jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. If you have high sensitivity as a person and somebody says, oh, you're so sensitive, you might interpret their tone or their words yes. as meaning something because you are <laughs> highly yes, sensitive yes, or you feel deeper and yeah. things like that. And it's just this, you know, it's and I love that you brought sure. up self-compassion or one thing I use a lot with my clients, um, especially with like anxiety or those that are self-critical mm-hmm. or, you know, what was, is that what was actually said or is that how you interpreted it? Yes. Because it's it's okay if you interpreted it that way, but let's kind of unpack and yes. um, rewrite, rewrite what that means, like you just said. So um, I love that because actually that is, I'm so glad you touched on that because I forgot about that. Being able to read affect is like such, it's kind of a superpower of highly sensitive people, but it backfires. Um, yeah. So I'd like to use my daughter as an example. Like I could say something and she'll be like, are you angry with me? And I haven't said anything that, to indicate yeah. that, but she's actually right. I am like, so she's picking up on my tone and affect. And that is part of that depth of processing and the sensitive nervous system is that they are able to pick up on these feelings and tones and half the time, maybe they're not right. Right. Mm -hmm. And half the time, maybe they are. And so it is, it's a real challenge for patients um, to help patients differentiate. um, Like you said, like that reality testing of like, what's really going on here. But the other sort of perspective I want to add is I think sometimes highly sensitive people are seeing things that people don't see. Mm -hmm. So they might be picking, that's what I bring up my daughter. God, I didn't even realize my tone probably indicated there was some anger there. Wait a second, I was angry. Um, it's like they're just no, it's it's that's why it's kind of it's a blessing and a curse. Like I understand mm-hmm. why people that are highly sensitive feel like, God, I wish I wasn't so sensitive, especially when you're little, because it's um you just feel like things affect you more. Yeah. But like what a superpower. That's super cool. I mean, maybe she'll just, you know, makes you a great therapist, but um <gasps> being able to like pick up on other people's feelings, but then learning, learning the balance of like, Mm -hmm. okay, but how do I, you know, differentiate between what's really happening and what I'm picking up and help myself, um, you know, interpret things more accurately in that Mm -hmm. situation. I think it's about like, I'm sure this is something you do of like telling your client, like for highly sensitive people, 
encouraging them to check out their assumptions. Mm-hmm. So for your client that was feeling um, like offended by something said, like, let's talk about how you can talk to that person. Mm-hmm. And it's like actually really um, helpful for them to check out their assumptions in the world because like more time, like people are not as upset with you as you think they are. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, kind of check, checking the facts, checking the evidence, whatever people yeah. like to say. And um, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned as you were talking, like highly sensitive people are more prone to anxiety, depression. I'm assuming those self-critical thoughts. We were just kind of yes. talking about interpreting others. So yeah. kind of bringing it back and tying in motherhood, which we talked about with self-compassion and mindfulness. Can mm-hmm. you talk about how anxiety, self-critical thoughts, things of that nature can impact motherhood or one's perception of themselves as a mother? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think just starting with um, starting with the self-critical thought piece, um, I sort of was talking about earlier how um, we tend to internalize the voice of our caregivers. And so back mm-hmm. to that sort of family systems kind of thinking of, um, I think the voice we hear in our head so often is is the voice that we heard when we were growing yeah. up. Um, and that's not, it's not always, um, it's not always a kumbaya cheerleader in our head, right? We're yeah, internalizing absolutely. sort of a, a negative voice that, holds on to self-critical things. And the other part too is our brains are negative leaning. So we might be, um, and that's sort of that evolutionary thing mm-hmm. of like our brains naturally think of the negative to keep us alive. But so we might be holding on to these really negative self-critical things from our childhood. And then as we become moms um, and we're challenged and we're put in new situations um, and we're seeing perhaps qualities of ourselves and our kid and we're getting triggered, those self-critical thoughts or we're not feeling good enough. That's a common one. Those self-critical thoughts are going to start coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think on top of that as moms, it's incredibly hard time to be a mom. I mean, my mom, my mom, who I love dearly (laughs) always says, I wish I had all this information when I was raising you. And I'm like, I get it, but it's almost too much. Like you Mm -hmm. can't hear your own voice anymore. Um, Absolutely. And I think it's led to so much growth and, and, I'm like cheering on this generation of mothers because we're, we're doing things differently. And I love that. But I think we're also really prone to anxiety and self-critical thoughts because mm-hmm. of how much external information and stimuli we're getting. The further away we get from like trusting our own voice, um, the more those self-critical thoughts pop up. So I think in motherhood, there's this natural process of reparenting um, mm-hmm. where we start to learn to talk to ourselves in a different way because our kids can inherit those self-critical thoughts. If that's how we're talking to ourselves, eventually that those are the kinds of voices our kids are going to hear in their heads too. Mm-hmm. So really working on rewriting the conversation in your head, really incorporating the self-compassion, learning how to speak to yourself kindly, learning how to accept your mistakes and your wrongdoings um, and accepting the idea that you're a good enough mother. Mm-hmm. The whole Winnicott idea of, um, we don't have to be that perfect mom, that perfect Instagram, <laughs> social media, Pinterest mom. You have to be a good enough mom. So yeah. um, I think the self-critical thoughts pop up when we feel like we're not doing like a stellar kick-ass job all the time. 
my guess is if you're even worried about being a good mom, that you're probably showing up for your kid, you're emotionally attuned, and you're doing the best you can. Mm -hmm. So I think if we don't address those self-critical thoughts, I think it tends to sort of um, make us not feel good about ourselves. We can't be our best moms and parents showing up. Um, And then I think sort of the anxiety is sort of layered into that. Again, going back to that conversation about um, how like our brains are, you know, firing off all the time, especially Mm -hmm. as moms trying to keep our, our kids safe. Um, And if you're constantly in that fight or flight anxious mode, you're not present. Absolutely. You're not able to be there with your kids. You're not able to find joy. And so I think finding ways to, to um, manage the anxiety without being so judgmental of your experience of it. I think it's, I don't have any of the, you're so great with like research and statistics. I don't have any of the numbers, but you know, it's very, very common to have anxiety or have an anxiety disorder um, you know, in that perinatal phase. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you brought up like how much information we have yeah. because I mean, obviously there are a lot of different reasons individuals may have anxiety, uh, may have self-critical thoughts. But I mean, I know when I became a mom and I'm reading the books and then looking on social media and like, there's so much information out there, like different types of ways to sleep train or not sleep train, you yeah. know, baby wet leaning versus, you know, purees, um, d- all these different things. Do we use X, Y, or Z toys yeah. or like, do you do mm-hmm. Montessori style or get the Like there's so yeah. much information Crazy. and everybody has their opinions or you follow like mom accounts on social media and you brought up like the Pinterest mom and the Instagram yeah. mom and you and I both work like we, and sometimes my kid, like I think today I was like, what do you want for lunch? And she was like, I want a bagel and cheese. And I was like, mm-hmm. sure. Like, but she had peanut butter on her bagel and cheese it didn't go together, but whatever. Like yeah. that's what she wanted. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like some good protein. <laughs> yeah. I'm going it, it's, you know, then you, yeah, you have all the information you compare and then it's like, am I doing this right? Or why did my friend's baby sleep through the night at totally. eight weeks and I'm struggling or, and yeah, it can be overwhelming and going back to like highly sensitive individuals, like information yeah. overload. Information overload. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, all of that that you described can make someone feel like a lesser than parent. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, you're showing up, you're present, you have a loving, caring relationship. Like, I think um, it's really hard when we have so much information about how other people are living their lives. Oh, to not, absolutely. To, like to not filter that out and to not let that lead you down that self-critical path. Yes, for highly sensitive people, I've had to limit the amount of information that I take in. I'm really about Mm -hmm. like trying to, I'm also on my second child. So my Mm -hmm. second child is, um, you know, eating Doritos for breakfast. I'm not even (laughs) kidding. Some of it has been letting go of the expectations, Mm -hmm. like a really big deal has been letting go of expectations, but also limiting some of that external chatter. So that is like, I am on a mission to get 
all of my clients, but especially women and moms to like, listen to themselves. Yeah. It's great to go down that Google search. I love that we can find anything we want, but like, what if you um, sort of dialed into what is it that, what is it that you feel feels right and okay Mm -hmm. in this moment? And is it good enough? It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, And that can be hard if you have, if you didn't have those role models growing up, or if you didn't have, um, those, you know, positive voices of motherhood. And so in those cases, yeah, find yourself a mentor, find yourself a group, find yourself information that makes you feel supported, but like finding the balance of filtering how much you're taking in. And I, I stopped following so many mom accounts. Cause I was like, this Same. just makes me feel like trash. Like I can't, I'm like, yeah. I don't get it. you're doing your makeup and your hair and your getting food ready. And I'm like, my brain is like explode. Like even this morning, I told you before our, yep. our <laughs> pure chaos. And I just had a, like I did, I took like two to three deep breaths and I tried to center myself because that's real life. Real life is chaotic and messy and it's not what's always presented online. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I did the same thing. Like when I was pregnant, I followed a bunch of accounts. When I first had my daughter, I was like, Oh, okay. This is the stage of life. Right. And now I feel like it's either like funny motherhood accounts or more like, cause I'm so into research, like research evidence-based, like parenting or like psychology-based accounts. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Otherwise. Yeah, it it is. I know the whole like make, and I know like some people, I don't want to bash moms, obviously that get a full face of makeup on because for some people that is their self-care. That is their routine that would make them feel good. Yeah. If it's the weekend, I always apologize to my husband. I'm like, you're getting me in no makeup. Yeah. Sweats because. Yeah. <laughs> but you make a good point, which is that like, in no ways do I want to bash other moms. I think we all do things we can to take care of ourselves. Um, but I think it's easy for those that are more prone to self-critical thoughts or more highly mm-hmm. sensitive, using myself here as a, as the beta um, example to take that information in and, and feel less than. So absolutely, um, what you said is beautiful, which, yeah, maybe that is someone's self-care um, mm-hmm. to, to do all of those things. And what you're not seeing is the, you know, hour that it took to do that and the amount of help that they needed to yeah. get to that place. And so I think also just, um, especially working with young adults, there's been a lot of education of like, this is not real life. This is yeah. a portion and, Let's talk about what real life looks like. And again, weaving in the self-compassion that like real life is painful and messy and we're just seeing moments here mm-hmm. um, of people's lives. And so Absolutely. now I feel like we're not on a tangent about No, no, this is great. And so we're nearing the end, but kind of to tie, I guess, everything we've talked about together. Why would you say mindfulness and self-compassion are particularly important for those who are highly sensitive, struggle with anxiety, struggle with self-critical thoughts, and how do mindfulness and self-compassion benefit them? Yeah, so I was thinking about particularly sort of the high, highly sensitive. Um, if we're going to rethink how we think about highly sensitive people, I think you have beautiful gifts and energy to put out into the world. Um, But unfortunately, if you can't preserve your energy and if you Mm -hmm. can't 
um, work on ways to regulate yourself and not be so overstimulated, it's going to be hard to show up. And it's the same thing for moms. I think if we want to show up in the world as our best selves, I think it's about learning who we are, learning what helps us, um, what helps us feel like our most grounded, centered selves. My belief is that mindfulness and self-compassion are these tools that anyone can use, right? So that's why I like to talk about mindfulness in our thoughts, the breathing, the meditation, Mm -hmm. um, that anyone, busy moms can do that. People that are highly sensitive that can't get themselves into therapy and need some sort of tools that they can start using. I think the more grounded we feel, the more able we're to see our gifts in who we are, because we're all so different, right? Absolutely. Um, And I think when we feel more in our bodies, and when we feel like the voice in our head is kinder, Mm -hmm. I feel like we can just show up in the world in the way that we're meant to. Um, Absolutely. And I think moms, highly sensitive, um, anxious people, I think the approach needs to be kinder, Mm-hmm. not harsh interventions. Um, but I also think it needs to be like, um, what's the word autodidactic. It needs to be able to something that you can feel that you can do yourself. Mm-hmm. So you have that sense of empowerment. Absolutely. That yeah, that does. And I, I love that. I've loved this entire discussion, Kate. Um, before we r- wrap up, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would really like to touch on um, about any of the variety of topics that we've discussed today. No, I mean, that was, that was pretty thorough. I feel like we <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. So the last question I like to ask all my guests is where can people connect with you? For sure. Um, so I am on Instagram. It's just Dr. Kate Kaplan. So D-R-K-A-T-E-K-A-P-L-A-N. Um, I also have a website by the same name. So drkatekaplan.com. My caveat is that I need to redo my website. So please don't judge me. It's kind of <laughs> um, but yeah, you can find me there. Uh, but more, more times than not, you'll see more current information for me on the Instagram page. Absolutely. And I, that's how we connected. Yeah. Um, so I encourage everybody listening to go give Kate a follow because she puts out great content, especially around these topics that we discussed today, or uh, even the one minute mindfulness exercises that you already talked about. So um, I've, like I said, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you so much for taking time out of your, your morning, my afternoon to (laughs) be here with me. Um, I learned a lot and I know the listeners will too. So I just appreciate you uh, spending your hour or so with me and your knowledge and everything. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you all the listeners for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. 
Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.